This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. While they're heading out, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a question your way. Uh, it's this. Uh, who knows you best? Like in your life, who knows you best? <laughs> All right, Jesus, but in the flesh and blood here, maybe, if you have a spouse, who right now on planet Earth knows you best? Like better than anyone. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> um, uh, who knows your strengths, uh, your flaws, your secrets, your struggles, your good side, your bad side? Uh, most likely, you can probably count the number of people who know you that way on one hand. Uh, maybe even an entire hand isn't needed. Maybe it's just one person. Or maybe you've gone through life, like, closing people off, and nobody really knows, like, the real you. So who knows you best? Or, or maybe... Maybe the question isn't who knows you best, but what knows you best? Yeah, what, what knows you best? Uh, I, I think I know the answer to that. What knows you best? Your walls. Like the walls of your home. They know you best. They know your curves, your edges. Your truths, your secrets, your past, your present, they've seen you unraveled, your walls. They've seen you sick. They've seen you restless and lazy. They've seen you disrobed. There's the old saying, right? If these walls could talk. Uh, the implication being, oh, the stories that they would tell, the dirt that they'd give up on us. And so there's, in fact, this old Jewish tradition which teaches that on the day of the Lord, when we're standing before God to give an account, the walls of our homes will come to life, they'll morph and begin testifying for us or against us. Can you imagine? What goes on behind closed doors then would be laid wide open, all of it. What we've done when nobody else was watching or could see in <laughs> uh, would be put on full display. Your walls would, would give testimony for you or against you, and if we're all honest, that is kind of a terrifying thought. This week, the image of walls has just been at the front of my mind all week. 
We just had our rock wall in our backyard fixed. It had two big holes on each end and rocks were spewing out of it. It was about to cave in. The top was cracking and so on. They came and they plugged the holes back up and they regrouted and they capped the top and it looks as good as new. It's an important wall. It functions kind of like a retainer wall in our backyard. And so I was looking at that and I was thinking of other walls too. Uh, the Great Wall of China, the Berlin Wall, the Mexico border, U.S. border wall the wall that separates Israel from Palestine. And of course, Scripture speaks of walls, doesn't it? Uh, after being expelled from Eden, there's something like a wall with guardian cherubim like guarding it, right? For no re-entry. There's the walls of Jericho, the rebuilding of the walls in Nehemiah. And there's the walls of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 2, which are built on the foundations of the prophets and the apostles. Since time began, walls have been a thing. They've simultaneously functioned to keep things in, but also keep things out. And in Jewish thought, there's the view that the Torah, right, uh, what we refer to essentially as the Old Testament, uh, is something like a wall. Especially the law portion of it. It's, it's, meant, it's, it's meant to keep holy things in and to keep unholy things out. To keep the life-giving teachings of God in and safe and sacred and keep anything that can make them impure out. The Torah is like a, a, a law or a wall around the law, the one faithful to it, right? And so today as we begin our descent into Genesis 19, more walls are going to appear. The walls of Lot City. When we, when we begin to encounter his story inside of, he's sitting at the gate, the city wall. And then there's this, uh, the walls of his house. And then at the end of the story, we're going to see there's this walls of, of these caves, which is just a cave filled with indecency and impropriety and sexual deviance. So I've been wondering all week what it, what it might have been like to stand within the walls of any of those places, like Lot's house especially. And so I admit, right, it would be terrifying to have been there alone or to go there alone. And so I'm not going to go there alone. I'm going to take you there with me today. And I'm going to have you stand there with me. And we're going we're gonna to go together. And I'm going to warn you right now, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. I've asked Gavin and Tyler to have our children and youth out of the service today. Uh, and I've, I've also suggested that the, the parents, if they're able to sit down and rewatch this and discuss it. Um, and if you're here and you have anybody to discuss this with, please go discuss it. We have a sermon talk back at two o'clock online today. Come discuss this with us, right? Um, and so the bridge, right? I've been here. I'm going into my third year. And when I started, I preached the, those 16 articles of faith. That was a difficult sermon series. I've preached all the way through Revelation in a year. That was really difficult. But today's sermon is probably the most difficult yet. Um, and part of the reason is because it stands squarely opposed to sexual misconduct and sexual deviance in the ancient world, but also not surprisingly in our world today. And some hearing this would be like maybe incensed immediately and classify me as like a hater, a bigot, a homophobe, and I'm none of those things. Um, so I, I want to tell you, you're listening, uh, that I've, I've done my due diligence in preparing. And I, I just want to say before I really get going that what I'm saying today is out of a sincere place, a place of truth and love 
and um, uh, giving, giving way to the will of God and the mission of God and to the God whom I serve and I've devoted my life to. And I hope as we go along that you can sense sort of the care and effort put into this, yeah? Um, but this is a timely, uh, a word that's as timely as ever. And more than likely, interestingly, th this is going to only become more timely as, as we go on, as we move ahead on the world's timeline. There's a lot to, to consider and cover here. And what I want to do, I want to read Genesis 19 today. It's, it's a bit of a long chapter. We're going to walk through it. Um, and, and I'm going to offer some clarifying words along the way as we do. And after that, I want to offer a few thoughts in light of that larger question that Scripture is asking us. Um, I've shared with you before because I think that makes all the difference as we're understanding what's going on in this chapter. So we're going to turn to Genesis 19, um, and here's how it begins. It says, the two messengers, you remember in Genesis 18 there were three, um, but now there are two. The two messengers came to Sodom at evening. And Lot was sitting at the gate, right? The city wall of Sodom. The ancient cities used to be walled. He was sitting at the wall or the gate of Sodom. Lot saw them, the two messengers that had previously visited Abraham, um, and he rose up like Abraham to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the ground, and he said, Oh, please, my lords, turn into your servant's house. Stay the night. Wash your feet, and you can rise up early and then go on your way. And they said, No. We'll stay the night in the street, or another way to translate that is city square. And he urged them greatly. Oh, come in, come in, come in. And so they turned in with him and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and he baked flatbread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and one way to translate, from the youngest to the oldest, all the people, all the men of the area. And they called to Lot and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. So just a couple of really quick points here. For, this is a continuation, obviously, of Genesis 18, the preceding chapter. And you'll remember from last week's message that, as I said, there were three figures. Presumably, it's either God and two like angels or celestial figures, or it's the Trinity. Um, well, here in Genesis 19, it's just two figures. And so there's a good reason to think that it's probably like celestial figures, angels or messengers of God of some sort. The text is kind of ambiguous, actually. actually. Um, but the important thing is, whoever these two messengers or figures are, they are representatives of the divine. And that's what the story is telling us. They represent God. Which brings us uh, to the next point. So, in Hebrew, this word know... Right, you, you saw the end of the verse, right? Bring them out that we may know them. The word know is a euphemism. That's our word of the week, by the way. A euphemism is an everyday word that's used in place of one that's crude or sexual in nature, right? Um, you can probably think of a ton of them in our culture. We can do it pretty much with any word. Um, but Hebrew also is just full of euphemisms. They're all over our scripture. So the phrase in Hebrew uh, that it says to sit at the feet of, it's a euphemism in scripture for to have sexual intercourse with. Likewise, the phrase to see someone's nakedness or uncover their nakedness, it's a euphemism for to have sexual intercourse with. Um, so remember that. And the word yada in Hebrew, to know, it's also super common that it functions as a euphemism to have sexual intercourse with. 
And that's what no means here in this story. The men of Sodom, from the youngest men to the oldest men, they're looking to have sexual intercourse with these two divine representatives whom they believe to just be men. They want to rape the men. Sodomize them, right? It's very graphic. So because it's so graphic, the text is using euphemisms to try to like water it down a little bit, to calm it down a little bit, to de-intensify it. So keep those things in mind. uh, This euphemism, they want to know, we want to know them in. It helps tame the story a little bit. We're going to continue. Here's how the, the story goes on. Lot went out to them through the door and he shut the door behind himself, the door of his house. And he said, please, my brothers, don't act so wickedly, right? If they were just like, hey, we want to know who you got, then how's that wicked? So we know that it's a euphemism. Don't act so wickedly. Look now, I have two daughters who haven't known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them what is best in your eyes. And the Hebrew here is actually very graphic. Uh, perhaps even the insinuation of you can rape them to death. This is a similar language used in Judges 19 when a woman is literally raped to death. Right. Um, And so only don't do anything to these men because they've come under the shadow of my roof. And the men said, step away. And then they said, this one comes to sojourn. They're talking about Lot here. Lot, you're a foreigner and you're appointing yourself a judge over us. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So we're going to rape you worse than we were going to rape them. Right. So if you're thinking, right, did this That was a quick turn, right? That just happened? Yes, it just happened. The men of Sodom, who were exceedingly wicked in the Lord's eyes, they want to have sex with these divine representatives. And they they want to anally rape them. Very graphic here. That's why the kids are outdoors today. But Lot, Lot wants to stop them. And so, in an act of cowardice, he offers his soon-to-be-married, already-engaged daughters uh, to the crowd. The men of Sodom, they don't want the women. They want the men. And since they can't get the two men, they begin to go after Lot as the object of their homosexual gratification. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, man, why didn't Lot, like any good dad, like offer himself up instead of his daughters? Like, this is me, I I offer myself up, right? And then it hit me because Lot knew that if he did offer himself up, they were going to come after him. And we see that in the story. They're coming after him. He... The, the gay men here in Sodom, right? They wanted this male-on-male sex. And so they go for it. And here's how the verses uh, continue. Here's how the story continues. And they pressed hard on the man Lot and came near to break the door. Now, I don't know if that means they, they got a hold of Lot and did what they wanted to do. Um, but the men reached out their hand. This is the two divine representatives. They reached their hand out the door and they brought Lot into the house and then they shut the door. And then the two divine representatives, they struck the men who were at the door with, of the house with blindness, both small and great, both youngest and oldest, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. And the men said to Lot, do you, do you have anybody else here? They're crying out. Do you have anybody else here? Sons-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. This is two divine representatives, for we're going to destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown so great before Adonai that Adonai has sent us, the divine representatives, to destroy it. And Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to be married to his daughters and watched this. And he said to his sons-in-law, get up, 
Get out of this place, for Adonai will destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. They thought it was a joke. And so just before they can get a hold of Lot, um, he's spared. Uh, God's representatives pull him into the house. They slam the door in this sort of miraculous act. The figures blind the, the same-sex infatuated mob outside the door. And things seem to be calm, but, you know, I'm not so sure. Could you imagine the mood inside that house at that moment? Inside those walls? Like Lot's wife. Wondering, how could you do that to our daughters? Or the sons-in-law, like, wondering, how in the world, as our father-in-law, could have you, you have betrayed us like that? The daughters, wondering, Dad, how could you do this to us? If those walls could talk. Could you imagine what they'd say? We'd probably all want to cover our ears, wouldn't we? Just as a side note, right? Look at the, the sons-in-law. When they're warned about the coming destruction, they think it's a joke. They, presumably, they laugh. And this family, <laughs> this family doesn't know when it's appropriate and inappropriate to laugh, do they? Abraham laughs at God. Sarah laughs at God. The kids named laughter eventually, and here they're essentially laughing at the divine's representatives. Let's keep reading. It gets worse. This is not the worst yet. When the morning came, the agents hurried Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the wickedness of the city. But he lingered. And the men, the divine representatives, grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, his two daughters' hands, Adonai being merciful to him. And they took him out, Lot, and set him outside the city. And it came to pass that when they had taken them out, that he said, escape for your life. Don't look back. Don't look behind you. And don't stay anywhere in this plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. So the divine re representatives warn Lot and his family to flee this next morning. But look at how 16 start. But Lot lingered. But he lingered. Whew. Ever linger in your sin? Huh. Ever like... Ever try to get out of it, but just whoosh, get sucked back into it? Ever just like feel like you can't get out of that cycle of evil? The representatives of God like grab his hand, his wife's hand, his two daughters' hands, and they, they lead them out of the city. And you notice again that the prospective sons-in-law, they're so deep into the sin, into the, the sinfulness of this city, this wickedness and evil, they're not willing to leave. They don't leave. Lot, he's only a little better. He wants to linger there. Stay a little longer. Then watch. Watch what happens next here. 
And Lot said to them, Please, no, my Lord, look, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've magnified your loyalty, which you've shown to me in saving my life. I can't escape to that mountain lest evil overtake me and I die. Look, please, he says to the representatives, the city is near to flee to over here, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Isn't it a little one? And my soul will live. He said to him, Here, I've granted your request concerning this thing also, that I'll not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Hurry, Lot, escape there, for I can't do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. And the sun had, the sun had risen over the land when Lot came to Zoar, and Adonai reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah. Sulfur and fire from Adonai out of the sky. He overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the city, and that which grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. <laughs> so Lot, kind of like Uncle Abraham uh, begins negotiating with the, the divine representatives here, and he does some selfish negotiating. The, the, the men, they want Lot and his family to head to the mountain, and then Lot starts arguing in the middle of it. Even though they're saving him, he starts arguing with them right in the middle of it. Instead, he wants to go back into a city. The cities, by the way, in Scripture, are notorious for evil. <laughs> Um, and he, he gets his way, and he goes to Zoar, which in Hebrew means something like safe haven. And they're warned. His whole family's warned, don't look back. Just like, keep going. And the Lord's raining down fire and sulfur. Perhaps it was from an earthquake. We, we don't know. But we shouldn't miss the connections, right? Back to the Noah story here. Don't miss that. Because Noah's family... Just like Noah's family. They were warned before the destruction, right? So was Lot's. And you remember, just like the door was closed on Noah's ark, so too with Lot's family, the door, the door closed. Just like water rained on the land with Noah, so too Lot's land is rained on, but this time with fire and sulfur. Just like there was destruction with the land of Noah, so too the land is destroyed. And if you remember Noah's story, he comes out of the ark and he gets drunk right away. And as we're going to see in a moment, as soon as they get to the cave, they're going to get drunk. Lot's going to get drunk. And just like there was some sexual impropriety after that act of drunkenness in Noah's story, his son saw his nakedness, Perhaps that means his son raped him. We don't know. We're going to see something very similar here with Lot's daughters. The point is, friends, the destruction of Sodom is described as a sort of second flood brought on by a deluge of evil. Lot's wife, the text says, couldn't help but look back at the city of Sodom. She had been warned. And she turned into salt. Salt was a symbol, a sometimes symbol of infertility in the ancient world. And in so much of ancient literature, I could give you text after text after text after text where this story, it stands as a more memorial in all of antiquity of disobedience, 
Like if you wanted to use a sample story for disobedience, you tell your kids, don't be like Lot. You know, don't be like, don't be like Lot's wife. Don't be like Lot. This is the story you refer back to when you want to go back to disobedience. Like her sons-in-law who didn't leave, Lot who hesitated to leave, the wife also hesitated. She looked back, perhaps longingly, with a gaze, a desire, an urge to go back, and that was her demise. You ever get out of sin and then just one look back at it? and There's more. Let's keep reading. Abraham went up early in the morning to the place where he had stood before Adonai, and he looked around, or he looked toward Sodom. So he looked back, but he, he, he doesn't turn into salt. So the command wasn't given to him. He looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land of the plain, and saw that the smoke of the land went up as the smoke of a furnace. And when God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham. Isn't that interesting? He remembers Abraham, not Lot. He remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out of the middle of the overthrow. When, the over, when, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the mountains. So he ends up in the mountains anyways. And his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to live in Zoar, the, the safe place, the safe haven. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. The firstborn daughter said to the, the younger, Our father is old and there's not a man in the, this land to, to come into us. That's literally what it means. It's very graphic. In the way of all the land. So come, let's make our father drink wine and we will sleep with him, we'll lie with him that we may preserve our father's line. This is a screwed up story. They made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and slept with dad. He didn't know when she lay down or, or when she arose. And interestingly, so here Abraham looks back and he doesn't turn to salt. Um, but but he looked up to the landscape. He sees smoke and fire. It was like maybe a 9-11 moment for him, looking back there. Lot decides to eventually go into this cave, and just so we don't miss it, hang on to this. Caves are really, really important in the story of Genesis. Um, they're, they're, the place, they're the burial places, the places of death. People were buried in caves in Genesis. We're going to see in just a couple chapters, Sarah is buried in a cave. Eventually, Abraham's buried in the same cave, and his descendants, his relatives, are buried in the same cave. And so Lot enters into a cave with his daughters, minus the sons-in-law, minus the mom. They enter into this place of death, the cave. And just when you don't think the story could get any worse, let's keep reading. <laughs> On the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, look, I slept with daddy last night. Let's make him drink wine again tonight and you'll go in and you'll sleep with him. That way we may preserve our father's line. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger went in and slept with him. And he didn't know when she lay down or when she got up. Thus, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the children of Ammon to this day. And so, all right, hang with me here. Um, the daughters, they get their dad drunk and they rape him twice. Incest, right? The, uh, the man who put them up for rape just a little bit ago, the day before, 
is perhaps in an act of revenge raped by his daughters. Payback is a, you know what they say, right? Notice that after this, we never hear of Lot again, right? Um, his death, Lot's death like Abraham's, his, his death isn't told of in the rest of the story. He doesn't get an honorable burial. So this man who went from riches to rags, from top to bottom, uh, he had his choice, remember, at the beginning of the story, Abraham said, you can pick which land you want, and I'll go the opposite direction. He had his choice. He chose that land of sin. And uh, he, he chose the land of sin, and he ends up hiding in a cave at the end of his life. He's kind of like a modern-day Saddam Hussein uh, who was this rich tyrant, and then at the end of his life, he's found hiding in a dirt hole, a foxhole. And the daughters, they're raised in sinful Sodom. And they only do what they grew up seeing. They treat sex loosely as it is a means to a selfish end. And perhaps most interestingly, all along, right? Follow me here. All along, you know that Lot had been Abraham's plan B. And now, Lot becomes his daughter's plan B. They were engaged to be married, to have their own children. But when they lose their fiancés, they rape their dad. Lot is plan B again. His life was plan B. He died plan B. And so in the end, what is left? Two sons, Moab and Ammon. Fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And those two peoples, they're going to be the thorns in Israel's side for the rest of the Old Testament. Moab, by the way, Get this, the name Moab, it's a Hebrew compound word. It means son of the father. And Ammon means son of my kin. Their names are names of incest. How sick. If you ask any good liberal today, uh, they're going to try to convince you that God destroyed Sodom not because of the lust for sodomy and sexual deviance in Sodom, but because Lot was inhospitable to the guests. <laughs> or the city was inhospitable to the guests. This is garbage. Don't listen to that. Um, this is horrible scripture reading and ignoring all the facts. And there are a lot of facts here. I can't go into all of them today because I want to get to two bigger points here. And this is why I really want you to dial in with me. Okay? Uh, I need you to just stick with me for a few more minutes here. This is really important. I, I want you to see how Scripture unmistakably provides us with how we should be thinking about the issue of homosexuality today. So we're going to rewind just a little bit first. Um, remember, I've been telling you for like five months now, going on six months, uh, what, what is Scripture's one overarching question? I've shared this with you many, many times. How may we dwell with the Lord again? That's what it keeps asking over and over. The whole thing. Genesis 3, all the way to the end of Revelation. How do we dwell with the Lord again? That's the one thing it's concerned with. Or how do we get back into the Lord's presence? And so that scripture's main question all the way shot through. We're good, right? You follow me there. So Genesis 3 is concerned. Starting with Genesis 3, we're concerned with that question. How do we get back to God? How do we dwell with God again? 
And Exodus, the second book of Scripture, is, is interested in that same question. And in Exodus, we start to get a, some answers. Near the end of the Exodus story, in Exodus 14, we actually have this tabernacle is what it's called. It's also called a tent of meeting. And that's where God's presence lives, in the tent of meeting. It's where God's presence is housed. But the thing is, is that nobody can go in it. It can't be accessed yet. And so this question is still very live at the end of Exodus. How do we get into God's presence again? And it's, it's there. We, we see it. We, we know his presence is there. But man, how do we get into it? How do we get back into it? Neither Genesis nor Exodus give the answer. But the third book of Scripture, Leviticus, gives the answer. It does. And you, you just thought Leviticus was a bunch of boring rules. So, all right, hang with me. Uh, I'm bringing this home. Stick with me, right? Um, we're we're kind of like rounding second right now, like rounding second. The book of Leviticus is basically broken up into four parts. In Leviticus 1 to 10, directions are given for how the priests are to approach God's house. And then in Leviticus 11 through 16, directions are given to the priests for how to properly cleanse God's house. And so it actually is a bunch of rules and laws, but the purpose is huge. They have, how do we get back into God's presence as the focus? So those first two sections, they're rules mainly for the priestly figures. How to be kadash in Hebrew. Holy is the word kadash. But here's where it gets really awesome. The next section of Leviticus, Leviticus 17 to 27, it expands the whole thing to all Israelites, the whole congregation of Israel, everyday people. And it tells not just the priests, but how the everyday people tells them how to be kadash, how to be holy. Why? So that they can also enter into God's presence. And so this section, Leviticus 17 to 24, applies to all the people. It's called the holiness code. It's detailed directions, like detailed directions for how all people can be holy and enter into God's presence finally. And guess what stands right at the very front of the holiness code? Sexual holiness. How do you enter God's presence? Answer, ding, 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 sexual holiness. Leviticus 18 and 20, they're, they're very similar if you read them side by side. They are detailed for what sexual holiness looks like. Sexual uh, impurity or unholiness says, uh, the, the, the text defiles God's land, defiles the land. And that's how the whole thing is framed. So don't miss. And remember, the land was destroyed in Noah's day and in Sodom because humans defiled it. That's why it was destroyed. There's an important distinction between the holy and the profane. All right, so now we're rounding third, okay? Now, just as a reminder, we're, we're, we're going to Leviticus because it's finally giving the Israelites an answer to their question, how do we dwell with the Lord again? But, but there's another reason. Leviticus 18 and what we just read in Genesis 19, they're actually very similar. And we cannot overlook that. There's a difference. Leviticus 18, it is giving us a list of rules about sexual unholiness and unholiness. Uh, sexual holiness and unholiness. But Genesis 19 gives us the same exact thing, just in story form. You see. So watch this. Genesis 19 and is Leviticus 18, just in story form. And the, 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 the sexual unholiness, the sins are given in reverse order. I'm going to show you here in a minute. Um, so um, here we go. Look at this. 
Leviticus 18. If you, if you go read that today, um, in Leviticus 18, the first chunk of verses is dealing with commands against all forms of incest. And the next bit is going to deal with adultery, even adultery during menstruation. And following that, we have a command against exposing children uh, to or giving children over to sexual depravity. And then we have a, a command against homosexuality. And note, by the way, it's parallel in chapter 20. That's the, that, it's the only sexual sin that's called an abomination in Leviticus 20. And then finally, in Leviticus 18, we have the command against sex with other species, including bestiality. All right, so here's where it gets really, really significant. We're sliding into home plate right now, right? So um, if we take this list of sexual commands in Leviticus 18, we see that the story of, of Sodom in Genesis 19, now, you can see they're color-coded. The top matches with the bottom, and the second matches with the next to last, and the green, match. so they're, they're, they're just flipped. They're the same exact thing, but just flipped, right, reversed. And so the, the story tells the sins in reverse. The two divine angels... The representatives of God, there are different species. They show up in Sodom and the men want to rape them. That, that command is broken. The residents of Sodom, they're viewing them just as men and they want to have sex with them. So this homosexual act, it's broken, it's a sin. And all the males in Sodom, from youngest to oldest, want to rape the men. The young men are included and Lot offers up his younger daughters, his children. And so the command against exposing children to sexual deviance and depravity is broken. And that Lot's daughters were already engaged meant that to engage in sex would have been adultery. That command is violated, at least in intent. And finally, at the end of the story, the daughters rape their dad and they engage in incest. Here, we certainly have adultery. They were already betrothed to be married. All three were, in fact, and uh, the incest takes place. And so why am I showing you this? First, it's in just incredible. But second, you remember the question, how do we get into the presence of the Lord again? The answer, by being holy. The holiness code. Well, let me ask in another way. How do we, how do, what's the negative? Of it? How do we stay out of God's presence? By being unholy. <laughs> More specifically, by being sexually unholy. Uh, sexual deviance, sexual depravity. And so you see this stuff is serious. It's not a joke. Sexual depravity, uh, like Lot, like his sons-in-law, his wife, and his daughters is serious. Lot wanted to linger in that in Sodom. The sons-in-law stayed in that in Sodom. The mother looked back longingly at that in Sodom. And the daughters brought Sodom out with them and raped their dad. Sexual depravity just ropes people in. And guess what? Scripture says that it disqualifies those engaging in it from being in God's presence. It's the case from the Old Testament to the New. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Don't you know that people who are unjust won't inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. Those who are sexually immoral, those who worship false gods, adulterers, recipients of homosexual acts, givers of homosexual acts, thieves, the greedy, drunks, abusive people, and swindlers won't inherit God's kingdom. And then look at this. That is what some of you used to be. 
But, this is the maybe the biggest but in all of Scripture, but you were washed clean. You were made holy. And you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. Amen? Amen. Whoo! You see, this stuff, serious. There is no offer in Scripture to baptize sexual depravity and call it good or holy. It's not an option for true believers, true followers of Jesus. There is no offer to do that. That means that for you and me, in a context where homosexuality and other forms of what Scripture would classify as sexual depravity must not be things that we tacitly or willingly accept or willingly affirm. Because to do so is to undermine God and God's will and God's mission. And we just read what Paul says happens to people who do that. You are disqualified from the kingdom of God. And I'm telling you, Brothers and sisters, it's only going to get tougher. Our society is a modern-day Sodom. None of this was by accident. Not at all. The chief architect of the gay movement in 1998 or 1989 were clear about it. One of their seminal documents, they, they had eight strategies listed in this sort of seminal document for how to, in the decades that follow, uh, that followed 1989, to move society from unaffirming to fully affirming. And by the way, if you don't affirm, then we're going to finally force you to affirm, right? It's this well laid out plan. If you want it, I can send you the document. Um, but much of the strategy that they had developed involved infiltrating the church, and normalizing it within the church. And then once that was done, turning the tables on the people left in the congregations and making them look outdated and sound outdated and look uneducated and come across as bigots. This was planned in 1989. This wasn't by accident. This was their strategy. They're going to turn the tables on the naysayers. But my point is this, is that America is a modern-day Sodom, and that was part of the plan all along. And in fact, they've been pining. They've been longing for Sodom. Listen to how one gay thinker recently put it. This is, off, this is, this is from a gay thinker. He says this, But I want to reclaim Sodom for all our very own. And he says, So I speak a new myth. I want the timely hamlet of Sodom to be queer space. And really, it is ours whether we want it or not. So let's take it. Let's claim it. Speak it. Enough of our blood has been spilled in its name to warrant the ownership of that landscape a million times over. And all that because the nasty old God hates us queer boys, would rather kill us than look at us. So that's new? That God, rabid with his own omnipotence and made in the image of power-hungry, jealous, white, bourgeois, straight, able-bodied men is no friend, let alone God of mine. I like Sodom now, he says. I feel comfortable there. Of course God destroyed it. That's what straight men like to do. And now Sodom is ours. Nobody else dares step foot, body, or soul into that space. So let's take back Sodom. Let's rebuild there. They always give us the wastelands and we turn them into music and gardens full of our passions and desires and beauties. In that space, I can stand my ground. In that space, I can speak about my body without fear. And so it's only gonna get tougher. 
Trust me. Mark my words. It will not get easier, Christian. This is the issue of the day. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's the place where you will likely be forced to decide, will I bail on God or will I hold fast? This is the crossroad question. Will I shrug my shoulders and let the schools indoctrinate the kids and the parents and the faculty and so on, or will I hold fast? It's reaching into every area of society, and you have to make a choice, cave or stand firm. The whole irony, right, of the situation now in our society, I sometimes feel like Lot. I, I sometimes I'm feeling trapped inside my own home like, like people, the mob is surrounding me, ready to cancel and kill me because I'm speaking up. Like job on the line, well-being on the line, life on the line, but here's the reality, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And that's what it's all about. See, I've become convinced God's mission and God's will are one and the same, pretty much the same. For us, here's what God's will is. For us to live holy lives, to draw all people to Jesus, that they might all unite in Him. Simple, period. That's God's will. Same for you as it is for me. And how we live then, through our holiness to draw people to Jesus, how we live matters. It's the fuel that fuels God's mission and carries out God's will. So it's never just like my private own religion, my quiet little faith. It's, it's costly sometimes. And so people are trapped in sin and our job is to live holy and show them Jesus. And as, as Paul said, our hope is that they would meet Christ and be washed by Christ and sanctified and made holy by Christ and justified and made right with God through Christ because that's true love at work. It's not just a weak shoulder shrugging affirmation, right? It, it, it's a call for you and me to be sincere in how we live and move and have our being in this world. And this brings us to our bottom line, that sincerity paves the way for holiness. How? Well, to be sincere requires honesty. And you have to be honest with God and yourself and others. And that's the path toward holiness. Sincerity paves the way for holiness. So check this out. The word sincere in Latin, the first, it's a, it's a Latin compound word. The first part is sine, which means without. The second part, that kere in Latin is our English word wax. So sincere means without wax. What's that mean? Well, well, centuries ago, when a letter was sent, right, it was closed with a wax seal on the back of it. And when it was delivered, if the seal wasn't broken... That meant the letter hadn't been opened. But a letter without wax was free to be read by anyone. It was wide open. It was transparent. In our world today, we have to be sincere without wax, people. Got to be open and transparent and truthful and real and share the love of Christ we got to be transparent about our own redemption stories, our own conversion stories. Truthful about our lives, maybe where we've struggled with sexual depravity and sin. 
We got to be real in our relationships. And so it's that kind of sincerity that paves the way for holiness. And you know what? When we stand before God at the great resurrection day, even if the walls do talk, they'll testify in our favor that we belong in the house of the Lord. And God knows us best. Amen? If you would, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you go forth and live holy lives that you may draw all people to Jesus. They might unite in and under him. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.